Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Frogs War Podcast. I'm Jamie Plunkett. I'm Melissa Trebwasser. We're here this week to chat. We've got TCU baseball news after they got off to a hot start this opening weekend of the season. We've got Thank some God. not as great basketball news with another key injury to TCU's starting lineup and some tough losses in the last week. And we've got the best kind of news, Melissa. Fake news. Fake news. Fake My favorite recruiting news. news. This is a story that is one hilarious, two pulled actual recruiting websites offsides, and three uh, pulled actual recruiting coordinators for actual colleges offsides. It's got everything, and it's already starting to change the way that uh, recruiting sites input kids into their system, which I think is nuts. Yeah, it's you know this is. This is the world that we're living in. It's a crazy one. It's a crazy one. But fortunately, Melissa, it's also a world where TCU baseball is 2-1 and coming off of their opening weekend in the MLB4 tournament out in Scottsdale, Arizona, the inaugural tournament put on by Major League Baseball, where the Frogs dropped their Friday night game 2 nothing to Cal State Fullerton and came back Saturday and Sunday with 19 total runs to beat Virginia and top-ranked Vanderbilt. Um I was out of town, so I didn't get to see much of any of these games. Really, nobody did, I yeah, guess. No, it no one saw it. But, uh, um, but uh, uh, Melissa, you kept track of these games pretty closely. What were the positives from this weekend for TCU baseball? Well, I mean, I think you have to start with the starting pitching. I mean, it's it's easy to get excited about putting up, you know, double-digit runs um, against the number one team in the country and, and scoring, what was it, nine runs on, on Saturday night mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and that that's super exciting. But really this team is, is – oh, there's Bauer. There's no, Bauer. It's, it's not a Two podcast. Two minutes and five so, seconds in. So Bauer says hello. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think I think this team, if they want to accomplish their, their big goals, it's going to be on the back of the pitching staff. And to see Lodolo was still a little bit shaky. And, and by shaky, I mean he gave up two runs. But he didn't look quite as sharp as – as we want that Friday night ace to look, but I'm, I haven't, I haven't given up on him by any stretch yet. Uh, seeing Janzak come out and pitch the way that he did Saturday, just to see him on the mound is a, a semi miracle in itself. Um, and Dalton Brown, the same thing. I mean, combined, those guys have missed, you know, 21 months of, of live baseball. So to see them both come out and look super, super sharp was great. Um, and then of course to see Brandon Williamson, um, who's a little bit of a wild card as a, a Juco guy coming off an injury, but, Oh my gosh, that dude had seven strikeouts and three point two innings. Like you, you gotta feel pretty good about where the starting pitching and the relief pitching stand. So um that was great. And then of course to see Josh Watson have the weekend that he had. Um that's a guy that has to hit if the frogs are gonna be successful. And I am clearly already all on board the Porter Brown train. So uh true freshman, uh just a speed demon. He's he's the leadoff hitter, he's a DH. He had three steals in three games, and really he had three steals in two games. Uh, batted over 500 on the weekend, and and just seemed to be a real pest uh, for opposing defenses every time he got on base. So um, I'm excited about the makeup of this team. I like kind of their mentality. I like their business like uh, work ethic. I like the way that they bounced back after getting shut out Friday night and just looked absolutely dominant against two teams that could very well get to Omaha. Um, and with baseball kind of spiraling down, it is great to have TCU bas- baseball uh, basketball spiraling down. It's great to have TCU baseball on deck and, and looking strong coming out of the gate. Yeah, so let's break down some of these things that you mentioned a little bit more uh, with the starting pitching specifically because, like you mentioned, we've got 
a, a weekend rotation that arguably is the best in the country, uh, at least one of the best rotations sure. in the country, yeah. with uh, a guy in Nick Lodolo who's probably going to be a top two round draft pick in the MLB draft this year. Um, and then Janzik, who we've all seen uh, when he's at peak performance, the guy is untouchable. And Brandon Williamson, who's got a really live fastball, some really, really tough off-speed stuff, um, and, and was dominant at the Juco level with, I think, you know, uh, like w- averaging one and a quarter strikeouts per inning throughout his Juco career or something like that, which is just absolutely wild. Uh, and two thirds of those guys are coming off of injuries. And so realistically, it was a great weekend, I think, for the starting pitching simply because all of these guys were on the mound. And, you know, after the um, Sunday start that Williamson had, uh, Schloss came out and even said as much. He said, you know, he's only been on the mound five times since the start of fall camp. So for him to come out, really not having much, uh, you know, work under his belt in the last six or seven months to stand on the mound and do what he did to the number one team in the country. That's wild. So I think really, you know, as, as good as we knew this starting pitching had the potential to be, this was an incredibly positive note for the first weekend uh, of the season. For sure. Um, that, you know, when you have, and we didn't even see any of those guys really go the distance that we expect them to go on a game to game basis. But like you said, just to get them back on the bump and, and to see them doing what they do, throwing strikes. I mean, TCU hardly walked anybody over the course of the weekend. I think they finished here with, um, let me pull this up, pitching. They only issued, uh, nine walks over three games. I mean, that's, oh no, yeah, that, that's pretty outstanding. Um, and three of those came from Janzak, who, you know, like we said, just really hadn't hadn't done a lot of pitching in the last year. So uh, mm-hmm. got a couple of freshmen out there. We got our first look at uh, Spencer Arigetti, uh, Marcelo Spaghetti. Perez as well. Spaghetti, Spencer Spaghetti, uh, Marcelo Perez, who's a guy that, that people are really excited about. Um, and, and then Charles King had a really nice appearance as well. So uh, it's it's deep. Um, you know, they, they can't really afford a lot of injuries with Russell Smith and, and uh, um uh, help me out. Caleb Sloan already on the shelf mm-hmm. for the remainder of the season. But, you know, Jake Heisler was nails. I mean, he picked up right where he left off uh, last May. Charles King looked great. And we're going to get our first look at Halen Green Wednesday night at, at Lupton. And so uh, there, there's there's a little bit of uh, uh, powder still left in the keg there if it comes down to it. But hopefully this group can stay healthy and, and lead the charge for a TCU baseball team that has Omaha expectations again. Yeah, and I want to talk about Jake Eisler a little bit more for just a second because this is a guy who, you know, Brandon Williamson, like you said, had had seven strikeouts in three and two thirds innings against Vanderbilt, and then Eisler came in and closed out the game. <laughs> and so, you know, he threw five point one innings. He allowed four base runners throughout that entire time, three hits and a walk. Uh, he was lights out in that contest, shutting down a very potent Vanderbilt lineup. Um, and we got a couple of questions on Twitter and I think on the site too, about this with people asking, why isn't Jake Eisler kind of the fourth starter in this rotation? And I, I, I want to talk about that just for a second, because I think it's important to note Jake Eisler would be probably a Friday or Saturday starter on the majority of yeah. division one college baseball teams. Like he's an elite arm talent. He's got filthy off speed stuff. He's completely dominant. Um, He's, he has all of the makeups for a front end of the rotation starter in the collegiate level. TCU doesn't need him to be that. 
TCU needs him to be that versatile guy who can come in and get one guy out or get 14 guys in a row out. Um, and they need him to be able to pitch maybe two innings on Friday and two innings on Sunday. Whatever they need from him, he has proven that he is up to the challenge. And when you have a guy like that in your bullpen who's so incredibly flexible and durable, uh, it opens up a whole world of opportunities for you as a coach to say, all right, well, you know, we, we know that we can shuffle these other guys around because we've got Jake sitting there and he's, he can come in and kind of clean up whatever we need him to clean yeah. up. He's straight people. Um, yeah, he, he is Trey Tickle, absolutely right. And so I think when you have a guy who's as versatile and durable as Jake Eisler, you don't want to limit him to being the Saturday starter or being the, the Tuesday starter or whatever it may be because you never know when a situation may arise that you just need him to come in and take care of business. Well, and I think, too, with, with Bo Janzak and Williamson coming off of, of pretty significant injuries, having someone who can come in and throw five innings if he needs to – is a luxury that just not a lot of college baseball programs have. And, and really when it comes down to it, you know, these, these midweek guys, um, along with Charles, so Halen Green, Charles King, Jake Eisler, all three guys that can start. And maybe, maybe they kind of trade off. I think we'll see Eisler get some midweek starts. I think we'll see King get some midweek starts. But when it comes to Big 12 tournament and hopefully postseason play, these are guys that are going to start games for you. And so having the versatility mm-hmm. to use them, like you said, I think the, the perfect thing is that if they need to get one dude, or they need to go and mow down 14, they can do it all. Um, having three of those guys who are more than capable and, and being able to, to have guys from the right and the left, um, that that's just should really help TCU throughout the season and into postseason play. We haven't even seen Cal Coughlin yet, who may be the best, mm. you know, or at, at least at least the hardest <clears throat> reliever to face for opponents. And he hasn't even had, yeah. to, had to get up there yet. So um, it, it's, a, it's a fun group. They do a lot of things. I mean, you've got power pitchers. You've got swing and miss guys. You've got Janzek out there painting the black. Uh, it, it's it's a really versatile group for for Schlossnagel and um, uh, Kirk Starlews to be able to kind of toy with and and if they get hitting like they got this weekend backing them up, man, like it's it's time to get. It, it feels like TC baseball is back to what we expect going into the season. For sure, I mean we like we talked about this when we were previewing the season two. We anticipated TC's pitching being incredibly good, both on the front end and the back. Um, but I was just as, as impressed with the bats as you were this weekend. And it came down to two guys. I mean, there were multiple guys who were hitting, uh, incredibly well, but two guys that stood above the rest were, you know, senior leader Josh Watson. And you've already mentioned him, true freshman Porter Brown, who ha- right now leads the team in batting average, slugging percentage, on base percentage, OPS. He's tied for the, the team lead in, Stolen bases with three, and he's got, I believe, five runs scored already yeah. and four RBI, something yep. like that. I might have reversed those numbers. But uh, the guy had probably the the best weekend for a freshman in a long time, not just for TCU but in college baseball. He he was incredible this weekend. Yeah, he and, and the thing that's so interesting about him is, you know, he's not a guy that was drafted um, by the MLB, but he was a top-five-ranked outfielder in Texas and a top-300 player in the country. Um, and, but I think he was, he was underestimated as an athlete, but if you go back and you, you read what his high school coaches had to say about him around signing day. And, um, there was this great article, uh, right around when he committed to TCU, I think it was San Antonio news express. I mean, this is a, a kid who played at the same high school that Ty Summers did. So they're doing something right apparently down there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, he, they said he's the smartest player they've ever seen. He's a kid that can make adjustments from at bat to at bat from game to game that, 
it doesn't matter, you know, if he goes hitless one day, the, nothing seems to phase him. I mean, his plan coming into TCU was to major in neuroscience. Uh, I mean, Jeez. yeah, this is, this is a really, really bright, uh, heady, cerebral kid that just happens to be an absolute freak athlete that's probably running like a like a four three forty equivalent on the base pass. I mean, he, he's just he can fly. But what I really like about him is is that he's a speed guy that I think has a real understanding for the moment of when to run. Um, he's not he, he's very reminiscent of Cody Jones. Um, he, he just kind of, th- that, that was my early impression of him, which is super, super unfair to put on a freshman, but, um, he just kind of has that real feel for the game and, and understanding of timing in the moment. I cannot watch, wait to watch this kid play in person. I, I just, I can't imagine what it's going to be like to see him, you know, field level running the bases and been putting so much pressure defensively. Um, and you know, two, one thing you didn't mention, he drew two walks. He struck mm-hmm. out three times, but I'm fairly certain two of those strikeouts came Friday night. And he made big, even Schlossnagel said he made pretty significant adjustments from Friday to Saturday to get himself back on track. So he's, yeah, he's, and good. It, he's, he's really good. I'm, I'm so pumped to watch this kid play over the next, over, over this season and then in seasons to come. But, um, you know, he isn't the only kind of new face that really lifted this lineup. You have three Juco kids who really kind of stepped in. And had incredible weekends. Austin Henry, Jake Gunther, and Hunter Wolf. Uh, and Hunter Wolf and Austin Henry actually came from the same JUCO mm-hmm. up in Michigan, I believe. Um, Tennessee. But you have, or Tennessee, sorry. But you have uh, Austin Henry and Hunter Wolf who um, just had incredible weekends. Hunter Wolf walked five times. Yeah. He only, he only went two for six over the weekend, and you look at that and you say, oh, what did he really do? Well, he walked five times, he had three stolen bases, and he scored four runs. So uh, I'd say that's a pretty good opening weekend for him. You have Austin Henry, who um, what he, he went six for 15. He, had, he leads the team right now in RBIs with five. Uh, you know, he uh, had an incredible weekend as well. Uh, Jake Gunther um, is another kid who had a really good weekend, and – you know, Melissa, last year we were frustrated with this this team for a couple of reasons, mostly because the infield wasn't fielding well and pretty much nobody on the infield outside of Oviedo was hitting well either. And now in the opening weekend this year, you've got an infield that hit incredibly well and only had one error in the first three games of the season against incredibly good competition. So the upgrade feels like it's having an impact immediately. Now, as far as sustainability and longevity, obviously we don't know anything about that yet, but I, you know, expectations have to be high for TCU fans about this bunch right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, they did all that too, without Adam Oviedo, he missed the weekend series. He's, he's been nicked up a little bit in spring and, uh, you know, practicing leading up. So I don't know if he'll be back tomorrow or not, but Bobby Goodlow came in in his spot, a guy that no one had really been talking a whole lot about and, you know, gets, gets a, three hits and scores a run and, and 10 at bats and looks pretty good doing it too. So I think that, um, and you, and you were right. So, so Austin Henry is from Michigan, but Hunter Wolf is from, uh, Tennessee. Those are not the Juco teammates as I think we were, oh, who was it? Yeah, the, the Juco teammates are, um, uh, hold on. Let me, let's see here. It's Hunter Wolf and, uh, the other kid from Tennessee, is... Jake Gunter? Nope, Jake Gunter's from Sac City, which is a no. That's right. Yeah, maybe. Oh, maybe you know what? Uh, no, they are they are the teammates, but 
Austin is actually from Michigan and came to Tennessee. That's what it is. Okay. Sorry. Had to, it's, okay. We're struggling to know these guys. Um, Jake Gunter is another guy I definitely want to talk about, though. Um, I've, I've been kind of referring to him as Luke and Light. He, <laughs> he has that same approach at the plate. Um, super, super patient. You know, he, he definitely has the big stick. And, and we didn't see TCU hit one out, but I think this lineup has a little bit more power um, than, we're, than we've seen the last couple of years, even without a guy like Luke and Baker at the heart of it. But I think that Jake Gunther is going to um, provide a lot of protection for Josh Watson, and I think that's a big reason why Watson had such a good weekend. When you've got guys like Porter Brown who can get on, um, and you've got you know a, a guy like uh, uh, Austin Henry at the bottom of the lineup who can turn things over. I mean, just it's it looks complete, but it's early. But it's a complete yeah. lineup. They draw walks, they get on base, they steal bases, they hit extra bases, they hit for power. I still think we're going to see Johnny Riser. Uh, I think he's going to challenge Josh Watson for the home run lead by the time it's all said and done this season. Um, and Porter Brown, apparently, according to Schlossnagel, has quite a bit of pop in his bat as well. Um, that's surprising people. We may not see it this year, but, but he's a guy that I think is, we'll see him get at least one inside the parker, would be my guess. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it looks good. Now, now the two issues, and, and I know this is one of these is coming up on the run sheet, but Andrew mm-hmm. Cooper, um, who, who took, uh, Austin Wade's place in right field had a tough weekend. You don't need everybody to bat 300, right? Like if, if he's if he's going to be your your sieve a little bit, that's okay. But the other guy, I think people are a little bit concerned about is Zach Humphreys, uh, who went over in his first two games, and and Schwarzenegger gave him game three off, which is a pretty normal thing to do at this point in the season against non uh, conference opponents. But mm-hmm. he he really struggled. Had a couple of strikeouts, sounded into a double play, um, scored one run but went 0 for 8 over the course of the weekend and draw any walks. And so defensively was, was lights out um, throughout both the base runners that, that attempted to steal on him. But, you know, do we, do we get concerned about Zach Humphreys at this point in the season? Probably not. But, you know, I, I mentioned this a little bit in my Monday morning manager from earlier this week, but, uh, you know, he only, I mean, he's a kid that hit 225 all of last year is kind of, you know, uh, uh, I don't think he's ever going to be this guy that hits 260 and a bunch of home runs and is driving, you know, really turning over the bottom of the lineup. The expectations for Zach Humphrey need to be that he is uh, an above average um, defensive catcher who doesn't let balls get by him with a high um, ratio of throwing guys out to to steal attempts um, and can really just, you know, not be a guaranteed out. I mean, if the guy hits 230 and does everything that he's expected to do behind the plate, I think TCU fans will look and say, yeah, Zach Humphreys is a, is a positive contributor to this team. Um, but just some of his at-bats, as I was going back and reading and, and looking at the little stuff that we could fi- I could find, uh, some of these at-bats were pretty rough. And, uh, you know, it's, we're, we're talking about the positives and we're talking about, you know, Zach now, and, and it all needs to be contextualized by saying, you know, it's just the first three games of a very long season. Um, and so I have, I have, you know, long-term concerns, not many, but, uh, if there are questions about, about some of the limitations of this thing, I think, you know, some of the bottom of the order hitting with Kiefer and with Humphreys are, are something just to keep an eye on really. Um, and you know we'll see down the road if that continues continues to be an issue. Uh, whether um, Alex Isola gets a little bit more playing time, obviously when Oviedo comes back, um, someone's got to be the odd man out in the lineup, and there might be some shuffling 
uh, with some guys there. But you know, it, it's it's early, so I'm not terribly concerned about Zach no, Humphries yet, yeah. especially with with the way that he was playing behind the plate. Well, the thing that's interesting to me is, you know, number one, we got spoiled by Evan Skaggs, who's one of the most elite offensive catchers college baseball had seen, right? Well, like, not only, not family. only, yeah, not only were we spoiled by Skaggs, but look at the catchers that came before him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's TCU been a pretty good run. catchers at TCU have been incredible since Brian Holiday was helping sure. us get to the first College World Series in sure. 2011. So, you know, he, it, but, Zach Humphreys has some high has some high expectations to meet some big shoes to fill. Whatever whatever the analogy yeah. is that you want to use. Yeah, but he now he's a kid though as a, as a freshman when he was mostly playing DH hit 267. So, you know, he, he had uh, three, three doubles, two triples, a couple of home runs, 19 RBIs, slugged 396, uh, drew 17 walks, only struck out 20 times. And, and I think, you know, you said you don't think he's a guy that, that is going to hit 260, and maybe his average does dip a little bit now that he's a full-time starter behind the plate. And he's an elite defensive catcher. I mean, he is, for all Scout did wonderfully well, and for all the big moments that he had, he was not somebody that you looked at as an elite defensive catcher. He was he was a pretty sure. average defensive catcher. I mean, he he uh, he he juggled quite a few balls back there, and, and wasn't the greatest. He, he was good for a college. Like I'm not complaining about him, obviously, but but Humphreys is far better an athlete behind the plate, and, and thus far better a defensive player. But I think that that looking for him to hit 250, 255, 260 isn't unreasonable. I mean, he's got the ability. He took a big step backwards last year, but. I, I expect him to, to bring that average up slowly. And, and, you know, that's like you said, his approach at the plate needs to be better. Even if he's not going to hit, you know, with a with an average that gets people excited, as long as he has a mature approach at the plate and continues to make plays defensively and can handle this this talented pitching staff, then that's fine. The thing that will be interesting to me with Kiefer is that, you know, Porter Brown is is an outfielder. And if you have Alex Vaisola, who is a great hitter, uh, you've got Bobby Goodlow, who, who's, you know, had a pretty good weekend. Um, you know, how good of a defensive catcher or defensive, a defender is Andrew Kiefer in the outfield? And, you know, depending on what the rest of the lineup does, you start to see maybe Porter Brown get some starts and, and, you know, maybe Isola goes to the DH. I, I don't know. There's, there's some options here for sure. And Schlossnagel's going to have to juggle the lineup to keep people happy. Definitely. He definitely is, you know, but I think beyond uh, some questions about individual guys in the lineup, the, the thing that kind of drew um, me in and ha- has me asking the most questions is, is the number of guys left on base over the weekend. You know, you lose two to nothing to Cal State Fullerton on Friday night uh, and you see that there are 12 guys that were left on base in that game. That's pretty tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. And even in the games, um, on Saturday and Sunday where they're scoring nine and 10 runs, they left seven guys on base in both of those games. Now, you know, men left on base is just, it's a, it's a fact of life. When it comes to baseball, you're going to leave guys on base. You're not going to convert every scoring opportunity. That's just not how baseball works. Or as, uh, you know, Ron Washington says, that's just not how baseball go. But, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a concern moving forward just to say, Hey, how good is this lineup going to be at pushing runs across consistently? If they're, if they're leaving this many guys on base, um, you look at that 12, 12 guys left on base and you can even spin it to say, well, if they had pushed, you know, three of those guys across, maybe they're three and oh after this weekend. Um, but that's just something to keep an eye on too, is how many guys are they leaving on base? How, how many times are they converting, uh, when guys are in scoring position? Um, because that can be an indicator, and you know Parker can talk far more about this than than either of us. But 
that can be an indicator of how efficient a batting lineup is, is how many guys they're leaving on base and especially how many runners are they stranding in scoring position. Sure. Well, and, and the counter to that would be that so many of their runs came with two outs. And so, sure. so there's some balance there, but you're right. I mean, you, you can't leave double digit guys on base. This has long been a complaint for TCU fans, you know, over the last several years is, is not being able to get that timely hit. And while, you know, we, we left a lot of frogs on the bags hanging out over the weekend. So many of those runs came in with two outs. Um, you know, so many came in because guys drew two out walks or stole a timely base or, or were able to stretch a double into a triple. And so, I think that, um, that that's something hopefully that will resolve itself a little bit. Like you said, part of the game, it's something that you have to deal with. But if, uh, if they can continue to, to hit when the pressure's on, then I, I think that they'll be just fine in that regard. I think so, too. I think so, too. And, you know, we get to see more of this happening uh, this week to see how they resolve some of these things and, and to see if they can't uh, keep up the hot hitting like they'd had over the first weekend of the season with Abilene Christian coming to town on Wednesday night at 6.30 over at Lupton, uh, and then obviously hosting Grand Canyon University, or should I say Grand Copyright University, uh, over the weekend at Lupton as well. So, um, you know, some some opponents that might give TCU the opportunity to really capitalize on the momentum of the first weekend. uh, And, you know, coming into this podcast next week, we could see a a TCU team that, you know, realistically is 6-1, 7-1 depending on how the next Tuesday game goes. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of what you need to expect. You you want to see them come out against, you know, overmatched opponents and and just get a win streak going and go into that Houston tournament that's another loaded field and, and get a couple of wins. That's that's obviously the goal, and, and you want to get that positive momentum because the schedule is is pretty tough once you, once you get past these first couple of opening games. It really is. But, Melissa, let's take a break, and then when we come back, we will talk about a sadder subject, TCU basketball. Oh, sad. All right, we're back after those friendly messages from the mothership. Um, Melissa, we've got to take it down for a second because TCU basketball uh, – is struggling to say the least. So the last time we podcasted, TC was coming off of a buzzer beater win at Oklahoma state, uh, a nice road win at Iowa state. Um, and then a really tough kind of heartbreaker style loss to Kansas on big Monday at the Sholly. Um, but since then they dropped a rough home game to Oklahoma 71 to 62. And they lost at Oklahoma state on Monday night, uh, 68 to 61 in a game that saw them down by double digits for the majority of the night. Um, Kawat Noy is out with an ankle injury. He rolled his ankle last Friday and missed the last two games. Is that the reason that TCU has lost these last two games that they probably should have won? I I mean, he makes a massive difference. You know, I, I think that not only are you bringing probably the, the best pure three point shooter, you know, you're taking him off the floor, but also defensively that really hurts you because you're replacing a dude that's six seven, six eight with a dude that's five eleven. And, you know, that that brings the overall starting lineup height down by like three inches, which may not seem like a lot, but especially with the way that teams are lighting TCU up from beyond the three point line, I, I think that's a huge, huge factor. Um, especially against Oklahoma State Monday night. So 
that plus you're losing another guy in the rotation that you're asking Kendrick Davis to play a ton more minutes than he's used to doing. And, uh, you know, for a freshman, he's just not used to playing this much basketball. I mean, high school seasons have wound down or winding down by this point, and you still got another month plus to go potentially. So um, they look tired. I mean, watching that game last night, like this team looks tired and everybody's saying, well, you know, your rotation's tightened down. You're only playing six or seven guys by this point in the season anyways. But what nobody has talked about is the fact that they only have seven guys to practice with right now. And they're Mm -hmm. using an assistant coach to run five on five drills. So that practice starts to take a toll. You can't practice as hard because you're trying to save your guys' legs. Uh, that means that you can't work on stuff when you're when you're asking the walk-ons and, and Dylan Arnett and Owen Asheris to to be prepping you for these Big 12 opponents. Like they just aren't going to be playing at the high level that um, you know that, that that the starting guys would. And and not having those four players that transferred, not having um, Quat Noy in practice, like this is a huge huge difference maker just in game prep leading up to the week. So there's a lot of issues. Um, none of them are guys not trying. Absolutely none of no. them are these guys giving up. Absolutely none of them are are poor coaching. Um, Jamie Dixon is doing whatever he can to make this lineup work. It's just not working right now. It isn't. And it's easy to get frustrated at a head coach um, when things are going poorly and when the offense isn't clicking and, and you know, all of this, these other things. But realistically, uh, Jamie Dixon has no control over injuries. This isn't his fault. This isn't an assistant coach's fault for pushing guys in practice or something stupid like that. This is this is simply just kind of the luck of the draw. And TCU basketball, like TCU football this year, has had really, really terrible injury luck. Um, you know, you're seeing, you know, and, and realistically, you, you know, you talk about those those four transfers. Three of those already had season-ending injuries and wouldn't have been able to practice anyways. So even if they don't transfer out or say that they're leaving the program, Jalen Fisher, you add a lock and Angus McWilliam aren't going to be able to help you practice. Uh, the only one that really stings a little bit is Caden Archie, because you think about the playing time that kid could be getting right now. Uh, he might, he might be a starter Yeah. realistically. So you keep Kendrick Davis on the bench and he to have a little bit more length in your starting lineup. Um, he might be kicking himself a little bit right now, but uh, it's just it's just crappy luck. That's really what it is. And you know, for a team that we had such high expectations for, watching them go out there and just give it everything they've got, but they're missing shots. They're turning the ball over. They're not defending the perimeter well. We've seen that the last two games, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, especially on Monday night, was just drilling three after three after three. Um, you know, it can it it can be a little disheartening for a team. Um, and I think that's kind of where TCU basketball finds themselves right now is in this state of we're giving it our all, we're busting our asses for this thing, but it's just, it's not breaking our way right now. Well, and the thing that was a dead giveaway to me, just how tired this team, especially Alex Robinson is, is that I think they had cut it to four and Robinson was at the free throw line and, and took a fadeaway jumper at that point. And that to me is just a tired dude. When he's got yeah. his dribble from 15 to 18 feet and he's electing to take a step back 18 foot jumper which is not his shot whatsoever as opposed to trying to go to the rack or or keep the possession alive um I I just think they're tired and and look like there have been some possessions where 
I've been a little bit of frustrated. I would have liked to see, like, I will forever rue that last 14 seconds of the Kansas game for not calling mm-hmm. some type of double screen or, or something for Desmond Bain. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is just, this is more than most college basketball teams can endure when it comes to sheer numbers. And, and seeing them just, like you said, just try to battle and fight and do whatever they can. Uh, if, if you can't get on board with that, then you don't, I mean, you're not a TCU basketball fan and, and that's fine. Like people, but, but we've talked about this before. Our fan base still does not know college basketball. They don't understand mm-hmm. the ebbs and flows of the season because it's still something we're only three years into actually still being invested in in February. So th- this team is, has overachieved based on what's happening. There's not a culture problem. People aren't leaving because of something that Jamie Dixon or the coaches are doing. There's not an entitlement issue on the coaching staff or in the training room. This is, this is the new era of college free agent athletes. They're going to look for the best opportunities for themselves. It's not our place to begrudge them that. Um, mm-hmm. if, if they're not happy, then they're going to leave. And, and look, the thing that I said last night on Twitter is that if you look at all three of these guys with the exclusion of Jalen Fisher, who's probably going to have to go overseas and play would be my guess. Um, all three of them had taken a, a level down showing and that to me to says that they want to go and play. That's what they care about is going and getting their minutes. Yeah. And I have no problem with that, but those are guys that, like, I, I don't, again, like, I don't want to, like, rack on, like, a 20-year-old kid, but but those are guys that, that were about them, not not the team. And that's fine. Like, you know, those are guys that have pro aspirations, but they're they're going down to programs where they know they're going to play, um, and, and that's their right to do so. But it just says a lot to me that they all step down the level in order to get more PT and, instead of trying to stay, and, and I would like to see them stay and compete for it here, I guess. But, um that's the way it goes, man. That's this is the world mm-hmm. that we live in, and so you you hang on tight. You you maybe think you can sneak into the NCAA tournament this year, and if not, then you know you go to the NIT, you get some more reps for some of these young kids, and you try to go in an NIT championship in Madison Square Garden again. Nothing. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Nothing wrong with bringing home a trophy. Yeah. You know, and, we've just we just put we just put the cheese it bowl trophy in a glass box yeah. in the little Hall of you Fame bet. space there. So another yeah. NIT one wouldn't be bad, I guess. Yeah. Well and and to me, like this last month of the season is about Alex Robinson and JD Miller. JD Miller is a four year guy. He's been through a lot. He's been a great contributor, he's been a great leader, great teammate. He's he's does whatever the team asks of him. And Alex Robinson, you know, I think I think you wanted to touch on this in a little bit more in depth, or yeah. Uh, the, well, I'll let I'll let you lead that one off then. Sure, I mean, yeah, and you're you're absolutely right about JD Miller. Before we get into a Rob, like this, the guy has given literally everything that he has to this program over the last four years. Uh, if anybody says anything other than thank you to JD Miller on his way out to whatever's next for him. Uh, they, you know, they can come talk to me first because I have some pretty strong words for him. That's it'd be absolutely ridiculous for you to not. And I've seen some criticism of him this year, like, oh, well, he's just not as good as we hoped he would be and blah, blah, blah. That dude busts his ass every mm-hmm. night. So if you have a bad thing to say about J.D. Miller, you can take that somewhere else. Go, yeah, go, um, go tell it to J.D. Because I'm pretty sure that right. he, can, <laughs> he can handle himself. Yes, he, he can handle his business. I'm confident in that. But, yeah, let's talk about Alex Rod- Robinson for a second because, uh, first of all, before we get into this, he didn't get hurt hurt against Oklahoma State. He was cramping. He said so much. He said as much after the game. Dixon said as much after the game. He should be good to go against Iowa State on Saturday. And, side note, Coat Noy should be able to go on Saturday against Iowa State. Jamie Dixon has said that. 
since the Oklahoma State game as well. So one can only hope that Kawat Noy is back to help this thing. But talking about Alex Robinson, I have a question for you, Melissa. This guy is a 1,000-point scorer for this program, the all-time leading assists man. And it feels like, because he makes some poor decisions in in the midst of games, which cannot be overlooked. He had a couple passes yesterday that looked like he thought uh, Kendrick Davis was sitting in the fourth or fifth row of the stands. <laughs> um, but is he becoming the Kenny Hill of TCU basketball, where no matter what he does well, people are only going to focus on his mistakes? I, I think it's a, it's a very apt comparison for sure. Um, he, he's a guy who... If you can appreciate him in a vacuum, then you can understand just what a great player he is. But if you're constantly trying to compare him to others, you're never going to be happy with what he brings. Um, Alex Robinson's skill set is, is pretty unique for collegiate point guard. Uh, you know, he's, he's a guy who, who drives looking to dish. He doesn't have a great shot. He's not a great free throw shooter. He has as good or better vision than absolutely anybody in the country right now. And if he was two mm-hmm. inches taller, and 20 pounds heavier, then you'd be looking at an all – he really should be an all-Big 12 player this year, period. Um, TCU's recent recent struggles may prevent that from happening. But, uh, you know, he leads the conference in assists. He's in the top 10 in the country in assists per game. Uh, he does all of the little things. He's played great defense this year. I think that's an underrated aspect of what he's been doing for TCU. He's been mm-hmm. really active defensively. Uh, and he, he just throws his body around. I mean, this dude is not very big and he just constantly throws his body around. Uh, he, he's very much like Kenny Hill in that his ceiling isn't going to be as high as some of the guys that we're hopefully going to see play for TCU down the line. And so, by virtue of that, you know, maybe maybe TCU's ceiling is a little bit lower. But by the same token, he's probably the best point guard that we've had in Fort Worth, I mean, easily in the last 20 years, easily, maybe the last 30, um, you know, maybe since the Jamie Dixon himself era. So, um, I mean, he, there's nothing more he can do. Like he, he is doing everything he is capable of doing, and he's doing it very, very well for TCU, and fans need to be more appreciative of uh, just how talented he is. I agree. I totally agree because I think it's a little ridiculous that the guy has uh, set an all-time record this year and nobody can give him one single second to, you know, recognize the effort that he has put in for this program. Um, And like you said, he does have major flaws in his game. The, The kid absolutely wants to drive left every single time he has the basketball. And if he can't get to his left, it looks like he really doesn't know what to do half the time. But that being said, he is an incredible passer. He has extraordinary vision and he's, he's actually, he's, if people would just take a second and watch, he's improved going to his right game over game over game this year. Oh yeah. Because yeah. he knows that, you know, every big 12 team kind of knows the book. They're going to put pressure on him up at the top of the key and they're going to force him to his offhand, which is his right hand. Uh, and he has handled that incredibly well. He only had three turnovers against Oklahoma State. For a guy that handles the ball as much as him, that's an incredibly low number. Um, yeah, so, you're, yeah, people don't appreciate Alex Robinson. And it drives me just as nuts as it did when, you know, everybody said, oh, well, Kenny Hill's game is too limited, so we can't like him at all. You know, that's such a crap fan take. I mean, remember. It's not. It's It's just It's a bunch of crap. Remember when Alex Robinson came to TCU as a transfer from A&M? TCU was not good. That was a no, terrible program. He came before 
he committed before Jamie Dixon did. You know, he mm-hmm. came as part of Trent Johnson's recruiting class, and yes. he he came to TCU so at the time. Yeah, at the time of, um, you know, he was he was a four star recruit. Uh, he was one of the top point guards in Texas. It was a huge step backwards from him from playing at A and M, which was a really solid program at that time, to playing for TCU. And he chose to come and play at the place that his mom played. He chose to come play close to home. He chose to want to give back to Fort Worth, and and he does have his limitations, but. I mean, imagine anybody else running this team right now. Uh, and, and I think they've made a really, really smart adjustment, making Kendrick Davis more of the primary ball handler and Alex Robinson more of the offense instigator. I think that's worked mm-hmm. really, really well. And as Kendrick's uh, three-point shot gets better and better, we're starting to really see um, the offense look more fluid. If they bring Noy back and Noy's healthy on Saturday, I think we'll see a much more effective offense than we've seen the last two days. But um you know, the, the, the TLDR on this is that Alex Thomas is a great player. He, he's an all-timer at TCU. He's going to own multiple records. He brought TCU to their first NIT championship. He brought TCU to the first NCAA tournament in 20 years. Uh, and he's got a chance to bring him back to the NCAA tournament in back-to-back years for the first time in decades, too. So get off his back. Appreciate this team that's doing everything they can. Understand that sometimes crap happens. And let's let's root from the rest of the way and, and get ready for next year. End rant. It was a good one, though. Yeah, end rant. Mm. Uh, so a question for you, Melissa. And I know that we're both working on different aspects of an article kind of around this idea um, that I, I guess yours will be published by the time this podcast posts. Um, mine may or may not be, depending on, you know, things and stuff. Um but it it feels like even if Kowatnoi comes back and TCU has him reinserted into the starting lineup, uh, the attrition has finally caught up to this team. They look they look exhausted. They don't have, like you said, enough guys to even practice at full speed. Um, you know, the rotation is cut short in games because they only have seven scholarship guys, and that includes a kid that they put on scholarship this semester. Um, do fans need to shift their expectations for the rest of the season? Yeah. Because I know we had really high expectations coming into this thing. The expectation was challenge for a Big 12 title, get back to the NCAA tournament and be higher than a six seed, maybe like a four seed, maybe even a three seed if things really break our way, um, make a run, maybe even – I mean, your high hopes were, were Sweet 16 related, right? And and so now that we know that most of those things probably aren't going to come to fruition, what do fans need to do to adjust their own expectations so that we don't just uh, complain and whine about the last five games of the regular season plus the Big 12 tournament? Well, yeah, I mean, I think before the calendar turned, I did believe this was a Sweet 16 team. I mean, a, a healthy Jalen Fisher, uh, the depth that they had at the wing position with Archie and Man, the backup of Uada Locke, who was starting to, to look like maybe he, he could be an effective backup here. Um, a guy like Russell Barlow developing in practice and, and beating on Kevin Samuel and helping him get better. I mean, those, those were all things that we looked at and said, man, this team is really going to be trouble in the Big 12. Uh, and, and it was amazing how quickly all of that turned. This is, this is a team that if they sneak into the tournament, we should all be, we should be as happy as we were a year ago. Um, they just, I just, it's going to be tough for them to do. The Big 12 is still a great conference despite, you know, PC isn't the only one dealing with some serious injury and attrition. I mean, Baylor's had guys miss games. Iowa State's had guys miss games. Oklahoma State also down to seven scholarship players and held open tryouts, you know, in Stillwater. So, um, it's still a really tough conference to win games, and, and that's what people need to remember. And so 
I think you'd like to see the Frogs go out and, and beat West Virginia and Texas on the road. I think those are winnable games for them. If they get one out of two, great, just because it's been really hard for the Frogs to win away from home. Um, and, and you'd really like to see them get one more marquee home win, whether that's maybe Iowa State or Texas Tech or Kansas State. I mean, that's three ranked opponents. If you can, if you can win two games here the rest of the way um, and, you know, finish, maybe get a win or two in the, in the Big 12 tournament, maybe you still can finish sixth. Um, I think that that's, that should be considered a successful season. You can't – the thing that's been really frustrating to me, and, and I got into it with some folks on Twitter a lot the other night during the game Monday – is that you can't say, well, we were supposed to be better than this and now we're not and not factor in all of the attrition. And, and somebody even said, well, Jamie Dixon said the yeah. injuries and the, and the transfers aren't an excuse. Well, he has to say that. He can't sit there and go, hey, we've lost too many players because then what are his players going to say? Oh, we don't have to try anymore. So it, it is absolutely an excuse. You, how many college basketball programs have lost five guys? Not a lot. Not a whole lot. Oklahoma State. Yeah. And, and where are they winning? At home, you know, against right. unranked opponents. So, uh, Oklahoma, Gallagher Iba is still a tough place to, to win games. So, uh, yeah, they needed to get that done Monday night. They didn't. But, but at the end of the day, like, you can't say, well, we've been building up to this and then we, we took a big step backwards without talking about the four guys that transferred out of the program and the one guy that, that's out for the year with an injury. So, again, that's just understanding the big picture. This is a rebuild that was – this is a team that was 0-18 five seasons ago. <laughs> this is year mm-hmm. three of the Jamie Dixon era. It doesn't always – in college athletics, the, the, the chart doesn't always go up. And this has been a, a giant step backwards, but I don't think it's the start of a trend. I think it's an, an aberration, and it's something that will be corrected next year and that our expectation now, go out and compete with your, with your last five games of the season, try to get a road win, Try to win one or two of these home games that are going to be super tough, and and said maybe make a postseason tournament of some kind and, and go from there. Absolutely, absolutely. If you don't adjust your expectations when a season goes like this, especially on the injury front, you're just setting yourself up to be frustrated and disappointed, rather than looking for things like growth. You know, we've seen incredible growth from Kendrick Davis this whole season because he's gotten the opportunity to play um, in Jalen Fisher's absence. Uh, and I don't think we're any worse off for knowing the kind of point guard that Kendrick Davis is going to be moving forward because of what we've seen from him this year. The kid has, has an incredible uh, skill set. And, uh, you know, you're talking about if A-Rob was two or three inches taller, if that kid was 6'3 or 6'4, he's probably not even at TCU right now. He's probably at, like, Duke yeah. or North Carolina. And so this kid is an incredible talent that we've gotten to see because of the attrition this year. Uh, and the same goes for Russell Barlow. That he, He's very obviously not ready to play yet at the collegiate level. He needed a redshirt season, but we're getting to see some of what he's got. Uh, and that's beneficial to this thing in the long run because he's getting game experience. Same goes for Kevin Samuel. He's still just a redshirt freshman. You know, Kawat Noy is still just a sophomore. Glatt Mayan is just a redshirt freshman. These guys have gotten incredible minutes, and you can't, you can't underwrite or you can't undersell the value of some of those things, even if the season isn't going the way we all hoped. And and we said, I, Melissa, I feel like we had some of these same conversations around TCU football this year too, mm-hmm. because you had all of these young guys coming in. I mean, Trevon Morig is a true freshman. He wasn't supposed to play much this year. The dude started the last like six or seven games at safety out of desperate need. You know, you had Garrett Wallow 
as a redshirt freshman, moving and playing safety because of a desperate need after starting some of the year at linebacker because other guys were getting hurt, like Ty Summers and uh, and Montreal Wilson. So you know, this is just a trend of TCU athletics really at this point is guys getting hurt in droves and young talent coming in and realistically stepping up into the moment and proving that it wasn't too big for them. And I think that's an incredible testament to the level that TCU athletics are recruiting at at this point. And if you can't at least take away that positive, then I don't, maybe, maybe fans aren't even looking for a positive takeaway. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, and I think you're right. Is we're going to see the, the benefits of all that experience from, uh, TCU football, I think, in the fall. And sometimes mm-hmm. you, you take, and Patterson talked about this a lot, sometimes you have to take a step backwards in order to take a big step forward. And maybe that'll be the case with TCU basketball, too. I mean, you're going to lose J.D. Miller and Alex Robinson. But in theory, you bring everybody else back. And then yeah. you add P.J. Fuller, Deontay oh. <laughs> Smith, who already has 12 three-pointers in a high school game this year, uh, Francisco, Francisco Farabella, who's, who's going to be maybe a little bit of a project. He may take a little bit of time to develop, but he may not have that opportunity. Um, and then now you've got, um, uh, you know, one scholarship, maybe two scholarships available for guys. And you're, you're in the, you're in the mix for some of these top remaining talents on the board. And so, mm-hmm. um, I think we're going to be okay. This has been frustrating, but like we keep saying it again, it's a little bit out of anybody's hands and you, you just have to ride it, man. And you just have to be proud of what these guys are accomplishing and, and thankful that TCU has reached a point where we get to be frustrated about, you know, losing games to ranked opponents. Like that, that to me is still the, the part that we need to have a little bit more perspective on. Absolutely. I totally agree. Uh, but next up, Frog fans have an opportunity to continue to support this team Saturday, 1 o'clock in the afternoon at home against Iowa State. Show up and be loud. These kids aren't going to quit. No, no, we can't either. Mm-mm. All right, Melissa, let's take another break, and then we're going to get into a segment. Uh, we're going to resurrect a segment that we used to have on the podcast. <laughs> All right, so, Melissa, what would I tell you? What would you do if I told you that TCU fans are tweeting at Jeremiah Donati? Oh, God, do I need to bring out the don't tweet at CDC uh, uh, graphics again? We can do yeah. this. Yeah. We don't, can do this. don't tweet at ADJD. Yeah. Don't uh, do it. My, you know what? The, the blessing and the curse of having accessible athletic directors and people with a Twitter that are fans. And apparently, I mean, DC fans are much better than what I'm seeing get tweeted at poor Crystal Conte down by at Texas. But mm-hmm. don't tweet at ADJD. Don't do it. If you think about it, yeah. don't do it. Yes. I mean, here's just a general reminder for, for people is just never tweet. Yeah. Never do it. I mean, ever. I love Twitter. I should never tweet. It's fine. Everything's fine. It'll be better for all of us. So just to remind, just to remind the masses here, here are a couple of things uh, that you should never tweet at any athletic director, more or less TCU's wonderful athletic director, Jeremiah Donati Um, requests to buy jerseys or hats or pants or complain about merchandise in the stores or just whatever it is that's merchandise related. Because I don't know if you know this, but as a side gig, Jeremiah Donati is not your retail salesperson. No, he, he um, is not TCU merchandising. He is the no, athletic is director. Indeed he is. Another thing that you shouldn't tweet at him. Um, 
You should not tweet at him about the status of the TV broadcast of tournaments outside of TCU's control because he is not an ESPN executive. No. Nor does he control 11 a.m. kickoff times for TCU football, just why we're in that, that conversation. He does not because he is not an ESPN or Fox TV executive. And you definitely shouldn't tweet at him and suggest that TCU student athletes don't work hard in the offseason or that the injuries are somehow his fault or that attendance is somehow his fault because uh, he is not your parent. He is not uh, a coach or a trainer. He is not the one who scheduled three other things for you to do instead of going to a football game or a basketball game, nor is he an at-risk-for-injury ligament like an ACL or an MCL? Again, Jeremiah Donati is an athletic director. He is not no. any of those other things. He, <laughs> he is not he, a meniscus. No. It, his job is to fundraise. He's <clears throat> very, very good at that. His yes, he is. His job is to work in conjunction with the coaches for scheduling decisions. Pretty good at that as well. Mm-hmm. And his job is to keep the coaches. And the last that I checked, Gary Patterson signed an extension. Jim Slosnagel signed an extension. Miraculously. Hopefully, yeah, miraculously. Hopefully, Jamie Dixon will sign an extension when UCLA inevitably calls. If he holds on to those guys, everything else after that, kind of gravy in my opinion. So he's a great guy. He's done a great job. He's filled massive, massive shoes, and he's done it with aplomb. Uh don't bother him with your dumb questions. No offense, but also totally take offense. Take offense to it. Also, you know, we talked about coaches and stuff, but let's talk about the east side of the football stadium that's being renovated with no lost seats. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty cool thing. Let's talk about some of the upgrades to, oh gosh, I don't know, the football jerseys that are pretty freaking awesome. Let's talk about But don't ask uh, them where you can buy them. Don't ask yeah, them don't where you can ask, buy them. Yeah, if you want to tweet at him, just thank him for all his hard work and say, you know, we appreciate all that you've done for this university and for these athletic programs. Like, don't complain at him. Turn to your friend and complain to your friend. Don't tweet no. out into the ether uh, without tagging him about your complaints. And also, don't tweet at the man. Don't ask him when the spring sale is. Like, one thing that we can say with, with certainty about TCU is that they really communicate when it comes to wanting money from us. Like, that's mm-hmm. never a problem. If they have an opportunity to make some money off of their fan base, they're going to let us know how to do that. I promise you. When the spring sale is announced, they'll announce it. It's okay. They, don't re- have to they will. Because you know the answer you're going to get? We'll have that information for you soon, guys and gals. That's what he says every single time. They will tell us. And, again, he doesn't schedule that. You know why? He's not the equipment manager. He's the athletic director, Jamie. He sure is. Just in case there's any confusion, don't tweet at Jeremiah Donati. Except to say thank you. Except to say thanks. Okay, Melissa, let's move on to some news. I think we've I think we've cleared all of that Twitter, Twitter stuff up, at least uh, temporarily. Okay. Next week, though, folks, if you keep tweeting at him, we're going to start reading your dumb tweets mm-hmm. on this episode, on this podcast. Might just dedicate an entire episode to it at some point call you out um but let's get to the you know last week melissa we waited an entire episode to talk about poop Mm, this week we're going to talk all about fake recruiting news yes um so i want to 
preface this by saying we absolutely love, love, love the TCU guys from 24-7 sports and from rivals. Billy and Jeremy and Jeff and their whole teams, we love them to death. They crack us up in the press box and and getting ready for games. Uh, They are incredibly good at what they do. Um, and we're, we're this has no players than them, though. We're better basketball players than we them. We are better basketball said. players than them. Undoubtedly, we would beat them in a two-on-two tournament, hands down. Uh, and they even admit that. They do, because they're, they're humble people that know, that know their limitations. Um, this has no bearing on their abilities to do their job, but it does involve their websites. And so I just wanted to say that because this could easily be construed to just make fun of them. And and I don't want that because they're good people. Um, But a group of kids have catfished rivals and thus catfished 24 seven sports with a fake offensive tackle for the 2020 class, Blake Carringer. So this article is from uh, Valentine's Day, actually. It's a love story like no other, Melissa, mm-hmm. a fake recruit and recruiting rankings. Um, but just over a week after National Signing Day, 24-7 Sports announced a pretty big change to its recruiting rating service. Um, the composite rankings won't, lo- won't list um, ratings for prospects who don't also have a specific 24-7 rating. Um, and it appears that this change is coming on the heels of a recruit by the name Blake Carringer um, being briefly ranked by their composite rankings because of a rating he received on Rivals. So I know that you understand this, but just for the, the average listener who maybe doesn't follow a ton of recruiting, uh, every single recruiting website has its own rating system for wh- how it how it ranks players. It has its five-star system and its point system. And and they do this all kind of in a vacuum with what their analysts decide about players' qualities. Um, But 24-7 Sports, while having its own ranking, also compiles a ranking that uh, factors in all of the other ratings from all of the other sites. So it factors in 24-7 Sports, Rivals, uh, Scout, I believe, and ESPN. So um, every time in the past, every time a player has been rated on any of those sites, they automatically get a rating in the 24-7 composite rankings. So it doesn't necessarily mean that 24-7 has rated them, but someone else has. So they're shifting Mm -hmm. that to say that a player won't be included in their composite rankings, and then they themselves have also rated that player. We're on the same page? We're on the same page. Cool. So... There was this kid um, who doesn't exist <laughs> or, or does exist, I guess, um, is a real human being, but is not 6'6", is not 315 pounds, and does not hold offers from Alabama, Georgia, Florida. Um, and so let's see here. Let me, where do I start with this? Um, <clears throat> Uh, Blake Carringer uh, was being described by some folks on Twitter as a 2020 offensive lineman out of Tennessee with several top scholarship offers, including Alabama and Georgia. Um, and somewhere along the way, rivals rated him as a three-star player 
or a three-star kind of equates to a player with a good chance to be a contributor for a major program. Um, and that fed into the 24-7 sports composite. So this guy who doesn't actually have uh, any offers, isn't the size or weight that was listed on his page, um, and a guy who has no game film for any recruiting service to evaluate was given a three-star rating on Rivals and thus had a composite ranking on 24-7 Sports as well. And I think that's just absolutely wild. Yeah, you know, I think you have to take these recruiting rankings in the grain of salt. And I think that, you know, the TCU guys do a really, really great job. Um, but it is absolutely proof that the Bama bump is real. Um, we, mm-hmm. We've heard about that forever that, you know, if a, if a guy gets an offer from Alabama, it doesn't matter who they are, what they are, they immediately go up a rating. And we've seen that in, with TCU in some regard that not that you, you usually get dinged a star if you commit to TCU, but normally once Gary Patterson offers a kid, you see that kid get offers from Texas and Texas A&M and, and every other school in the state because they think, hey, if he's good enough for Gary's defense, he's probably good enough for ours. Um, but but it, it, my favorite part of this whole thing was I don't know if you saw Kelsey Patterson's tweet. The the wife of of Coach P, Mrs. Coach P, uh, said Gary Patterson had a pretty pretty well traveled quote this year that said, "Those are your stars, not mine." And and she just mm-hmm. quoted that story with your stars. And I just thought that was just beautifully thrown shade uh, on Twitter mm-hmm. earlier this week. Um, I. I I think it's fun to follow recruiting. I think we all get into it. We all get excited. Those recruiting rankings do, to some degree, translate to wins and, and championships. Um, but I think it's just another reminder to take everything with a grain of salt. We both work with high school kids. We both know that high school kids are notoriously um, unreliable <laughs> as they figure out life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I would uh, – it definitely was a little bit eye-opening, I think, for some folks that, that – didn't realize how few resources some of these sites have to actually legitimately evaluate every player. Um, and that's why you can't get too high or too low until you start to see, you know, what these guys look like three and four years down the line. Definitely. Um, and, and it seems like this incident is changing a little bit of the system in a positive way, uh, which is nice. Not that it's ever going to be anywhere close to perfect, but it's nice to know that, that sites are reevaluating things based on this because people do put a lot of stock in those. And those are, those are big money makers for, for a lot of different people. And, and that's another thing to remember too, is there's a lot of money in, in these subscriptions and these, these sites. And so that's another thing just to remember is that everybody, you know, when it, when it comes to getting paid, everybody is going to some degree have, have their interests at stake. And um, I, I think that that, that is something to always keep in mind too, is that it's fun um, it's, it can get you super excited. You get to know players a little bit better. Um, but, but this is not a, a straight film evaluation. There's absolutely no way they could do that for these thousands of prospects annually. And so, you know, again, this my, my advice and anything recruiting related, just take it with a grain of salt. Let it play out a little bit. Get excited. Get, get pumped about guys coming in and, and getting to know names. And when you have, you know, a high rated player visit and all that, but, you know, it's it's still a little bit of a crapshoot because it's still 16, 17, 18-year-old kids. It sure is. It sure is. But, Melissa, there's there's one more thing that I want to get to tonight as far as news goes, um, and it is related to the fact that a lot of these student-athletes are kids or at least young, young adults. 
Um, the NCAA has already started a review of its guidelines that it uses when uh, granting immediate eligibility to athletes who transfer from one school to another. Um, because we've seen now, obviously there were some pretty big uh, <clears throat> transfer changes to the way kids can transfer this off season. Uh, and because of that, we've seen a tremendous increase in the number of kids that are uh, transferring from one school to another. And we've seen an increase in the number that have been granted immediate eligibility at some of these other schools, you know, Justin Fields at Ohio state, uh, Tate Martell down at Miami. Um, well, some he, of these he, kids who he in, hasn't been granted immediate eligibility. Yet. Oh, he hasn't he's, yet. Okay. No, but but he Fields has, has, right? Yeah. Fields has, uh, Martellus has very, very frivolous lawsuit, but has a really expensive lawyer pushing it. So I don't think he's going to, but it's possible. Okay. Um, so this article mentions uh, Justin Fields and Shea Patterson as yes. kids who have, have been able to transfer right away. Um, and, uh, you know, so this is, this is one of those conversations that I think will always continue to come up is what, um, how, how should we treat kids who are, are changing from one school to another um, when they have the tag of student athlete rather than just student. Um, you know, this is, I've, I've found it to be an incredibly interesting debate, um, year, uh, over the, over the years, just because of, of all of the different ways that it can be interpreted and, and approached. Um, you know, I personally, if I'm the, of the opinion, uh, that a kid, if, if we're allowing, regular students to transfer and they don't have to sit out of classes or clubs or whatever else it is for a semester or a year. Why are we asking student athletes to put their career or potential career on hold? Um, because they wanted to change schools. If we're not holding coaches to the same standard, then why are we holding these teenagers and, and kids in their early twenties to a standard that we're not holding fully grown adults to? Um, that's my own personal opinion. I know that that's an unpopular um, opinion uh, in most circles, but that's really just where I stand. Uh, so I find it interesting that, you know, they see an increase in the number of players that have asked for uh, immediate eligibility, that 29 since the start of the 2018-19 academic year, and about 66% of them have been granted that request. And now it feels like... Um, maybe that's too high of a percentage. And so the NCAA committee is coming back and reviewing how they grant immediate eligibility. Do you find that odd at all? You know, I, I think what they're really trying to avoid here is, is full on college free agency. And, and I have mixed feelings about this. Um, it, it's really hard for me to, to really, uh, to articulate kind of how I feel about it because I'm not a hundred percent here for full-on free agency, but really the Justin Fields case, in my opinion, has completely changed everything. And I'm surprised it didn't get more attention than it did. Um, he was granted immediate eligibility because he was able to argue that um, there was an unsafe environment for him at, at, at Georgia because of a racial slur that was used against him as he ran off the field by a Georgia baseball player. That is one of those scenarios where you can't say, no, that's not unsafe. Like, you can't. Like, the NCAA is completely backed into a corner there. They absolutely cannot deny him this waiver, but by granting him this waiver, you've really potentially opened the floodgates going forward too. 
um, because because now you know we, look we all know that drunken college football fans exist and can be really really horrible at times and so um, I, I think that that you've kind of you've created some opportunities to to open up more waiver opportunities. The Shea Patterson, you know, he left Ole Miss. They were in a bull band. There had been big restrictions. That that to me is a, a completely different scenario. Um, both of them, I think, were worthy of immediate eligibility. Um, I am not 100% gung-ho for full-on free agency. Um, just by watching what happened with TCU basketball this year, I, I think that, that there needs to be some – there needs to be some partnership here where both the school and the student-athlete need to make a commitment to each other that has some value. And I don't think either of them are doing so if you open up a full-on free agency. Do you make this a year-to-year contract? And at the end of your year, if you fulfill your duties, then you can transfer with no penalty – do you make do you start giving people four year contracts and that way if you and if you sign a four year deal as opposed to a one year deal then you're guaranteed four years of tuition uh, no matter what but if you sign a one year you can transfer without penalty i mean i think that they need to kind of explore some different things um there is some value in in a tuition and room and board and books but for the amount of money that uh, these college programs are making those values do not equate with the service of the athletes and so um, i think that they need to really examine what this looks like long term um i'm also big time for if a coach leaves between december signing day and, and february signing day uh, then the players should get to reopen their they should get to tear up their national letters of intent that's a whole other conversation but um i think you're right i think the ncaa is going oh this this spiral out of control a little quicker than we think and we need to make some changes and that was something that gary patterson alluded to in august as well that, that he thought that they went too full on too fast and and I think that, that he was right. I mean, if you look at it from a college coach's perspective, just how many kids entered the transfer portal and left programs this year. There, uh, Andy Staples did a great article. There are more kids in the transfer portal than there are scholarships available. And so there's going to be some mm-hmm. of these kids are going to try to transfer and have nowhere left to go. Um, so it's a work in progress. I think the most important thing is you do right by the kids um, and you give them opportunities to pursue their dreams and get an education and play um, they only, you only get four years to do it, so you really can't tell them that they can't. But uh, I don't think it's a, I don't think there's a perfect scenario here yet, and I think we're a long way from figuring out what works best. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. This is uh, not resolved by any stretch of the imagination, and and it won't be uh, for the foreseeable future. But you can make improvements to the system to make sure that it's as fair as it can be for everybody. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. All right, Melissa. Well, I think that will just about do it for this episode of the Frogs War podcast, folks. Thanks for hanging on with us through the duration of this episode. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to old episodes, or if you want to go and listen to the new show that's cropping up on the Frogs War podcast, Stats Award with Parker Fleming. Parker does an incredible job. He's our analytics guru over at Frogs War. He's been writing for us for a couple of years now, um, and he's getting into the podcast game. His latest episode, Five Numbers, uh, is an incredible look into literally five numbers that have uh, a great deal um, to show us about the early start to TCU's baseball season and where TCU basketball is headed over these last couple of weeks. It's a 20-minute it's episode, so it's literally like a nice little bite-sized episode that you can just go in and listen to. Uh, and be done with before you even know it. And at the end of that 20, 21 minutes, you've learned a tremendous amount, not only about numbers and analytics, but about TCU basketball and baseball along the way. Parker does a tremendous job with that. So give that a listen. Obviously, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, 
for, for your ratings and your reviews uh, and for all that you do to support the show. We truly do appreciate that. Um, pass the show on to a friend. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Frog Preacher. Melissa's at D Coach Melissa. The website is at Frogs of War. Um, Melissa, what am I forgetting? Am I forgetting anything at this point? No, I think we've got some more exciting podcast stuff that will be coming down the pipe to so make sure that, that you stay plugged in with, with what we're doing on Frogs mm-hmm. of War as, as part of being the, the official SB Nation podcast network, mostly, um, except when our icons are on the face. <laughs> but it's fine. Like, we're not bitter about that at all. Um, not sad. But, I'm not salty. Yeah, not sad. But it, but it gives us a lot of freedom, <clears> and, and we've got a lot of great contributors who are hopefully going to be lending their voices to some stuff soon. And obviously, read all of the work at frogswar.com because that's – that's the really that's the driver of all of this good stuff. So, but yeah, that'll just about do it. This has been yeah. another episode of the Frogs of War podcast. I'm Jamie Plunkett, Melissa Trebowasser. We'll see you at Lupton and at the Sholly doubleheader Saturday afternoon, 1 p.m. basketball game, 3 p.m. baseball game. Make them both. Make them both. Go frogs. <laughs> <laughs>